0: A newly discovered world circling two stars, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to the travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. Today, Lawrence Doyle will take us to Kepler-16b, the first planet found in a binary star system. We'll also talk to Lawrence about his intriguing plan to analyze communication among other species on our own planet. All our regulars are ready for their close-ups including Emily Lakdawalla. Emily, we both had adventures last week. They weren't quite synchronous though. Just at the moment that you were watching a launch, I think I was driving north Out of Roswell, New Mexico. No (laughs) no alien sightings, by the way.
1: Oh, they just erased your memory of the alien sightings. Oh,
0: gosh, I should have known. (laughs) Well, you have great memories of your experience up at Vandenberg.
1: I do. This is only the second launch that I've ever seen, and the previous one, which was Spirit on a Delta II, uh, was was in daylight, and this one was at night. And I have to say, I was unprepared for the spectacle. It was in the wee hours of the morning. The launch happened right around 3 a.m., and we could see all the way to the launch pad about 3 or 4 kilometers away which i understand is is pretty rare in that part of the country I, I understand it's usually very foggy there but we had a gorgeous view i could see the milky way overhead jupiter was blazing away and i was just staring at this launch pad waiting for it to go and of course we counted down and there it went And it was so incredibly bright. Not only did it like sear into my eyes, but it actually washed out all of the stars. It was only like Jupiter and a couple of bright stars were visible in the sky while this thing was launching. And then it kind of arced. It was actually arcing toward Jupiter. And, and slowly, as it as it got farther and farther away, the stars came back, which is, it was really quite a spectacle.
0: Who took that spectacular photo of the launch? Uh, one of the other uh, tweeters?
1: No, that was Ben Cooper of launchphotography.com, who is my absolute favorite launch photographer. He sets up cameras that trigger. I don't know how they trigger. Maybe it's the noise or something. I'm not even sure. But the way that he frames the shots to catch the flames and the smoke and, and the slightly fisheye view it's just Every single one of his photographs is spectacular.
0: It really was. And I'm also envious of you getting uh, so close to that uh, rocket before it lifted off. I'm surprised they let you get that close.
1: I, I am, too. And and actually, we, we were even doubly fortunate. We were supposed to get that close, but it was supposed to be after the tower rollback. But it just so happened that the rollback was delayed by two hours, so we got there right on time. And it's amazing how fast the tower pulls back from... From that tall rocket, and mm. then there it was. I think the Delta II is is one of the prettiest of rockets. It has that that nice Delta blue color, and um, which is kind of sad actually, because this was the last Delta II launch on their manifest. They've got a couple more rockets built, but but so far none of them sold, and and that that'll be it for the Delta family after um, or the Delta II, I should say for after 151 launches.
0: I know you got to see some other cool stuff up there on your uh, tour of uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base, and I guess you'll be writing about those.
1: I will. I'll write about a lot of it, but I'll just mention very quickly that I saw several of the different space launch complexes. This launch that I saw was at slic Two (SLC 2 they call them all SLIC. I also saw SLIC-6, which was originally built for Vandenberg to launch space shuttles, and their first launch was supposed to be in October of 1986. And if you can do the math, you can figure out what happened in March of 1986. The Challenger blew up, and that was the end of any plans to launch from Vandenberg. But now they're actually using that same pad to launch Delta IV heavies. So that's pretty cool.
0: Say a word about the whole point of bringing you all up there, the spacecraft that is now orbiting the Earth.
1: That's right, I almost forgot what was actually on <laughs> top of that rocket. It's a, it's a satellite called NPP, which I won't even bother to explain what the acronym stands for, but it's the latest in a long series of Earth-observing spacecraft. It's sort of an update of Terra and Aqua, and it's the predecessor for a new system that's going to be coming online in a few years called JPSS. But um, one of the things that I learned about the Earth-observing spacecraft is that each one is not radically different from previous ones, that in fact the most value to be made in, in creating and in taking Earth orbital data is to try to take data that's, that's taken by instruments that are pretty similar to each other. So you can establish a longer and longer and longer term record of your understanding of weather and climate. And that's very different from deep space missions.
0: Well, it's good to hear that you uh, helped get a new eye in the sky uh, over our own planet off to a good start. We'll be talking to you about other planets, I'm sure, again next week, Emily, and uh, look forward to that. See you then, Matt. Emily Lakdawalla is the science and technology coordinator for the Planetary Society and a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine. Up next, Bill Nye, the executive director of the Planetary Society, who's also been on the road. Bill, you gave us a little preview last week. Uh, You mentioned that you were going to be going to a meeting of SEDS. Remind us what that stands for.
2: The Students for the Exploration and Development of Space. I like that. Boulder, Colorado. They had their, their international meeting in Boulder, Colorado. Matt, it's just really exciting to see all these young people being graduated largely in aerospace engineering. Some are in systems uh, design. Others are in spacecraft design, mechanical design. Others are software people. And there are a lot of astrodynamicists, people that navigate the solar system and the stars with gravity and so on. It was really exciting. I did a little talk. It was great to meet everybody. And we debuted the Space Geek Campaign. Everybody's wearing their Space Geek buttons and we had a good time because these people are the future of space exploration. They are gonna make the next discoveries. They are gonna find the next thing after relativity. They are gonna investigate stuff like that claim or that uh, concern that there were particles going faster than light from Switzerland to Italy. They're gonna be the people making these investigations and these new discoveries, it was great.
0: I want one of those space geek buttons real soon, by the way.
2: Well, I know where to get one. You know, there's a guy who does a radio show who's going to be coming to work full-time at the Planetary Society.
0: Yeah, I haven't talked about that, but uh, that would be me. Yes, very exciting,
2: everybody. Matt Kaplan starts full-time at the Planetary Society on the 1st of November, this Tuesday. And, uh, Matt, I know you're going to tear it up. You're going to help us get the word out. Dare I say it change the world. I left Boulder... And I went to uh, Louisiana, I went to New Orleans, Nolens, if you will, for uh, the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, the organization that is derived entirely from the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of the Claims of the Paranormal, PSYCOP. The, the
0: former PSYCOP, yes.
2: Yeah, well PSYCOP was just too much of a mouthful, so they shortened it. And this is an organization of which Carl Sagan was one of the original members, fellows. I got the Praise of Reason Award. It's very cool.
0: Congratulations. So I got an
2: award from the students for my uh, promotion of science education, and I got an award from the skeptics. It was a big week for me, Matt. But <laughs> you're going to have a big week, and we're going to work to get everyone in the world excited about space exploration for a better tomorrow for all humankind. Is looking, that such a big deal?
0: It is, and I'm looking forward to joining you there at Planetary Society Headquarters. Bill, thanks very much. Thank you, Matt. He is the executive director of the Planetary Society and my new full-time boss. And uh, he's also the science and planetary guy who joins us every week here on the radio show. I'll be right back in just a moment with Lawrence Doyle to talk about Kepler-16b, otherwise known as Tatooine. Lawrence Stoyle has one of those questing minds that can't be satisfied with just one field of study. Someday soon we'll have to talk to him about quantum astronomy, but the topic could as easily be optics, life in the universe, the history of science, or Native American history. A principal investigator at the SETI Institute for almost 25 years, Lawrence is the lead author of a paper in Science announcing the discovery of something long speculated about, but never before actually detected. Remember the sunset a rather forlorn Luke Skywalker stood under on the desert planet Tatooine? There were two stars above that horizon. Lawrence, congratulations uh, to you and your team on the discovery of this first uh, confirmed planet in a two-star system. I hate to follow the line of the rest of the mass media, but uh, how close are we to looking at uh, Tatooine?
3: Well, it's uh, two-thirds of a Tatooine system, I would say. The planet, of course, is Saturn mass, so we don't expect it to be habitable, but it is half rock and half gas. And it's also just outside the habitable zone, but... The habitable zone for a circumbinary planet, you know, a planet that goes around two stars, varies, unlike a single-star hab zone, which is a certain distance from the star. The stars are changing their distance from the planet. As far as the stars go, they definitely produce a double sunset. So, say, if you could uh, stand on the surface of Kepler-16b, or, say, in the upper atmosphere, you would see a double sunset, but it would be different each time. the wow. Stars are changing their orientation to each other. So so it's kind of interesting. They, they move around each other as they set. So sometimes you get the red star setting first and sometimes the orange star. And sometimes they set together during eclipses. And, of course, the size of the star that sets would be different depending on if it was farther away or closer. Things get really complicated very quickly when you have two stars.
0: Quite fascinating to take a look at it from the viewpoint of this planet, uh, but also from high above this solar system. You know, I always envisioned a, uh, that if there was a planet f- in a binary system like this, that it would just be this frightfully complex orbit. But really, this thing, I, it looks like it's just sort of circling the center of gravity of these two stars from quite a bit farther out.
3: Yes, it's uh, the planet's actually in a circular orbit. It's more circular than the Earth's orbit. We know the Earth has pretty uniform uh, weather and climate so kepler 16 bs circle around the two stars barycenter that is the center of mass of the two stars is more circular than the earth's also it's closer to the plane of the two stars orbit around each other within one-third of a degree and that's closer than the planets in our own solar system line up with the equator of the sun mm. so altogether this is going to be a very difficult system to model because First, it's measured so accurately. It's probably the most accurately measured planet outside the solar system. Also, it's so exquisitely poised. You know, it's built with super precision. The the two orbits line up. The star orbits around each other with the planet orbit. And the primary star, the big star, is also lined up. Its equator is lined up with the same plane as the orbits. But I have to say... Um, the idea of calling it Tatooine, it was kind of, uh, when we knew it was a circumbinary planet, I emailed around, hey, we should ask George Lucas if we can nickname <laughs> it Tatooine. Aha! And, uh, but the NASA folks took it upon themselves and, and uh, contacted Industrial Light and Magic, and uh, their representative, uh, who's the director of Industrial Light and Magic, um, John Knoll, came uh, and was part of the press conference. But they only knew about it at the last minute, so all the graphics were actually produced by NASA and also by Josh Carter, the second author of the paper, who's also an artist, amateur artist.
0: He did an outstanding job. It's quite beautiful, and we will put up uh, links to those animations uh, where people can hear this show at planetary.org slash radio. Did you suspect for a long time that it was only a matter of time before we found a, a planet in a system like this?
3: Yeah, I thought so, because, you know, half the stars are double stars, and one in 70 uh, are eclipsing double stars, that, you know, basically one star goes in front of the other. And I didn't see any reason why planets couldn't form around both. However, the theorists were split on this. Uh, Half of them would say, well, you know, the two stars, as the protoplanetary disk starts to form... The two stars would shake it up and dissipate the disk, so you'd never get accretion of particles into planets. Whereas the other half of the theorists said, "Well, no. What happens is the two stars actually send a kind of density wave through the protoplanetary disk, and so material accretes more rapidly." Well, the exquisitely aligned planes of the planet with the two stars actually argues for the protoplanetary disk to be very gently forming into a planet, you know, without hardly any disturbances at all. So, we would say that, you know, half the folks have to go back to the drawing board and the other folks (laughs) have a problem with getting this kind of precision. In other words, you know, when the moon rocks are brought back, all the theories of the moon were essentially wrong. Some theories were so good they could fit almost everything but the potassium-argon ratio or so, you know, you had such exquisite detail that no one theory accounted for everything anymore. And Kepler-16 is challenging theorists on this basis.
0: I I love stories like this, these challenges to science.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, it it answers a lot of questions, but the theorists are going to be playing catch-up for some time with this system, which is great fun. The the other fun thing about Kepler, which you may not know, is that Kepler-16b transits both stars now but the transits are going to go away for a while, and then come back. So there's even a Halley's Comet aspect to the system. In 2018, the uh, this planet going across the big star will go away, hmm. and it'll come back in about 24 years. So we even expect folks to be looking for the transit of Kepler 16 to come back, you know, late into this century.
0: More from Lawrence Doyle on Kepler 16b in a minute. This is Planetary Radio. I'm Sally Ride. After becoming the first American woman in space, I dedicated myself to supporting space exploration and the education and inspiration of our youth. That's why I formed Sally Ride Science, and that's why I support the Planetary Society. The Society works with space agencies around the world and gets people directly involved with real space missions. Lawrence Doyle of the SETI Institute and UC Santa Cruz is lead author of a paper announcing the discovery of Kepler-16b, the first planet ever found in a system with two stars. I simply had to ask him about a science fiction story written 70 years ago. Here's a shot in the dark. Ever read a story by Isaac Asimov called Nightfall?
3: Yeah, yeah classic i love it i've read it i read it about once every year or so just because it's so cool
0: yeah it stayed with me ever since i was a kid and this of course was about a world that i forget how many stars it found its way around had to be at least four almost never i mean virtually never saw night until of course this cataclysmic event happens when night falls can you imagine going beyond binary systems because they're out there as well right
3: oh absolutely we uh We're about to publish a catalog, a Kepler catalog, on triple systems. They produce triple eclipses. We've compiled a bunch of those as well. And then looking for planets around all three stars? I don't know. Uh, (laughs) We're going to have a blast with that one. But but right now, um, we're actually putting together the first triple eclipsing trinary star catalog. Wow.
0: Well, as we have heard from Bill Barucki, the, the the hits just keep coming from Kepler, and uh, here is another great yeah. example, uh, and I'm sure your work will continue in this area. But I'm also curious about uh, another project, we, which we just started to talk about before uh, I started recording. I think it's great evidence of uh, the vast array of interests that you have. This one, having a, a tie-in to SETI, but also to uh, earthbound bound uh, creatures, our, our fellow animals here on Earth.
3: Well, yes, the idea, um, you know, astrobiology studies the extremes of biology on Earth with the idea of saying, okay, if you're going to look for extreme biology in space, then study the extreme biology on Earth, and that makes sense. So they go to uh, the psychrophiles in the uh, bottom of the ocean, or they go to hot ocean vents, Well, I just thought, well, if we're going to detect an extraterrestrial communication from space, then we should understand all the communication systems on Earth. And so I just drew the direct analogy. Let's face it, all animals communicate. I think even grasshoppers send messages to other grasshoppers to mate or feed or something. Mm -hmm. So given that all animals communicate, what are the general rules of intelligent and complex communication? For example, we know that whales had a complex communication system, a global communication system before we did.
0: Mm, Yeah, their own uh, internet.
3: Yeah, (laughs) exactly, and bees have a communication system that's probably symbolic. That is, they they dance the distance and angle and so on to the honey source, but they're doing it in the hive where no flowers are visible. So they're communicating something that isn't present. Basically, if we study the communication systems, especially the extreme ones on Earth, then we should be able to derive a filter for intelligent life communicating uh, that we can use for SETI and so far our tool has been what's called information theory. It's a kind of mathematics developed to see how many phone lines Bell Labs was going to have to uh, put between houses and so on, but it's now used by computers to compress data and so on but We use it to calculate the number of bits that different animals are communicating to each other, and I've even used it to quantify a communication between the plant and animal kingdoms.
0: Hmm. Is there a sort of citizen science angle to uh, this uh, project, at least as it's forming in your head?
3: Yes. It turns out that, for example, the sonograms, that's a plot of frequency with time, of dolphin and uh, humpback whales and so on, are as... Uh, well classified by eye as they are by computer. As a matter of fact, uh, some of the stuff is pretty tricky. Some of these sonograms are pretty tricky. But humans can learn to recognize them and compare the shapes and so on because we're really good at seeing patterns. So the idea would be to have people help us classify the different signals from different animals and create animal signal databases and then we could do the information theoretic analysis on them to see how how much uh, information they're transmitting between each other and maybe even across species, with the idea of eventually producing an intelligence filter for SETI when we get a SETI signal.
0: How long do you think it might be uh, before uh, folks can uh, add this to their computer at home, just like they have SETI at home?
3: Maybe sometime early next year, because uh, we have all this stuff we need you know all the equations and so for information theory it's just a matter of putting it into packets that people can then download to do distributed computing with
0: Absolutely fascinating, Lawrence, and there is much more that we could talk about, but we are more than out of time. I I hope that we can uh, pick this uh, discussion up again another time, whether it's about animal communications or some of the other things that you've uh, dealt with in the history of science, perhaps, or quantum physics, and certainly uh, continuing to look for those uh, planets uh, circling binary stars out and about in our galaxy.
3: It's been my pleasure. Thanks a lot.
0: Thank you very much. Boy, we still have to talk about uh, Cambria and our favorite restaurant there, but we'll do that another time, too. Uh, Lawrence Lawrence Doyle actually grew up in the city of Cambria, California, which I shouldn't mention because I don't want more people to go up there. But uh, since 1987, he's been a principal investigator with the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. He uh, is also a participating scientist, as you heard, on the NASA Kepler mission team. He has responsibility for detection of extrasolar planets around eclipsing binary systems. And that is exactly what has happened. He is the lead author of this paper that uh, is appearing in Science Magazine about the discovery of Kepler-16b in the system called Kepler-16, the 16th discovered by NASA's Kepler Space Telescope. We'll be right back. uh, Try and do a few discoveries of our own uh, naked-eye ones from the uh, night sky over our planet. That'll be when we join Bruce Betts for this week's edition of What's Up. Bruce Betts is back on the Skype line to bring us all the uh, best from the solar system and beyond because it's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Hi, welcome back. Good to be back. Yeah, me too. So you Uh, had a trip. I had quite a trip, and people are going to be hearing about it in some upcoming shows. Uh, The climax was the visit to Carlsbad Caverns, uh, and we climbed around in Slaughter Canyon Cave with some of the world's foremost cavers, Henny Boston. You know about her, right? Yes. She's so cool, just a great person. But a lot of great people were there, and it was just a blast.
4: By the way, I make it a practice never to go anywhere called things like Slaughter Canyon. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's okay. It was just a guy named Slaughter who owned it. It didn't actually. It wasn't actually the site of a massacre.
4: <laughs> okay. Up in the sky. First, let me tell you about something that's uh, hard to see. Not the usual naked eye thing, but uh, interesting. On November eighth, asteroid two thousand five YU fifty five will approach. Uh, will fly by Earth closer than the moon's distance. This is a big guy. It's a 400-meter-sized object. This wow. This cause some, some serious regional destruction were it to hit, but it's not going to, not even close. Uh, it will reach only a brightness of about 11th magnitude, who, for those of you who play in such things. So you'll need a telescope and need to follow it, but it is an interesting object and uh, certainly another reminder of things flying around our solar system and in a shooting gallery kind of a way. Why you? I don't know. Why Why not? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly uh easier to see in the sky we 've got Jupiter uh, right around opposition, meaning it 's on the opposite side of the sun uh, sorry opposite side of the earth from the sun, meaning it rises around sunset and sets around sunrise also in the middle of the night we've got Mars coming up and it's high overhead, uh, looking dim and reddish in the south during the pre dawn all right we 're going to move straight to. Random space fact. Thank you, uh, Mr. Lugosi. You ready for your close up? Undead. <laughs> I'm Undead. <I'm> <laughs> Mars and Mercury have nearly identical surface gravities. I find this fascinating. It's one of those things of uh, just the right parameters cancel out because, of course, uh, Mars is larger than Mercury. Uh, but when you factor in. Radius uh, radius squared distances and different densities, you end up, uh, both of them, almost identical if you're standing on the surface of those planets, both about 30% of Earth's surface gravity. Hmm. Given a choice, I'd rather stand on Mars. Okay. <laughs> if we have that choice, I will keep that in mind. We go on to uh, on the drunken Br- butler segment of our show, as we do every week. Uh, no, we go on to the trivia contest. We ask you what moon in the solar system is named for a drunken butler in a Shakespeare play. How do we do, Matt? Well, first let me tell you how my daughter Claire did, the Shakespearean actor
0: and, <laughs> uh, and aficionado. It took her a while, but she figured it out within about five minutes. It was Stefano of the planet Uranus, where I guess all the moons, almost all of them, are named after Shakespearean characters. And Stefano was out of uh, the Tempest. At least that's what we heard from this week's winner, Logan Clucky. Logan Clucky. Yes, pronounced just as it appears, he says. Logan is 13 years old. He had to use uh, Dad's uh, email uh, account because he doesn't have one yet. They live, he lives in Oregon, Ohio. No, not two states, a city called Oregon in Ohio. And he says he really likes our show and he hopes to be an astronomer. So, uh, Logan, we like you too.
4: Congratulations, you've won yourself a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Cool, congratulations. So uh, let's give uh, more people a chance. Here's the question for next time. How long is each pole of Uranus, sticking with the Uranian system, in darkness? During each of its years, so as Uranus goes around the sun, how long is each of them in darkness at the poles? Go to planetary.org slash radio. Find out how to enter.
0: I'm willing to bet it's a really long time, but you can send your precise answer to us by Monday, November 7, at 2 p.m. Pacific time. And uh, you might win yourself a shirt,
4: a Planetary Radio t-shirt, to be exact. You want a funny story? Always. So when you recorded me a couple of weeks ago, I of course was just coming off dungeon mastering and uh, and just about to do that now. Those following my my Twitter know this, but uh, it was kind of kind of fun because Bruce Cordell uh, turns out listens to our show all the time. is a game designer for Wizards of the Coast and actually designed the game that I'm uh, taking people through right now. He was one of the co designers, and and he listens to Planetary Radio, and our <laughs> and uh, dogs are excited about it. Everyone <laughs> I can tell. You want to hear a sad story? No? We didn't tell
0: people the answer last week. We named the winner. We did everything but tell them that the, the answer was Triton. Well, that was intuitively <laughs> obvious. I see. Yeah, so there really was no need with our sophisticated The question, audience. by the way, was
4: what is the only moon in the solar system between 2,000 and 3,000 kilometers in diameter? Thank you for that. All right, well, now that we have all that cleared up, you can say Ooh. good night. <laughs> all right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about your favorite maps. Thank you, and good night.
0: Take it from a guy who just spent a lot of time with maps of New Mexico. He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society,
4: and he joins us every week here for What's Up. Did you know maps backwards is spam? I just realized that. (laughs) I did not know that.
0: (laughs) Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and made possible by a grant from the Kenneth T. and Eileen L. Norris Foundation, and by the members of the Planetary Society clear skies.